Uh, I, I'm, I've always been in two minds about whether knowing what I know now, whether I'd do it again. I think it was this wonderful experience for him. And, you know, living a freelance life, it was, like, really good for me to have a dog there. It was also really stressful for him and really stressful for us and really expensive. That's Joel Werner. He's an audio producer now, but he first trained in science. Typically, Joel's good at making rational life decisions. This story is about a period of time between falling in love with Katie and them having kids that Joel made a bunch of decisions based largely around a dog. Decisions that cost a lot of money and cause no small amount of angst. Joel still can't quite believe it. But a couple of years ago, he moved from Sydney, Australia to New York, New York and back with his dog. I'm Michelle Ransom-Hughes. This is Oh My Dog and the story of Joel and Harry. So Katie, my wife, was really pushing to get a dog way harder than I was. Uh, I remember at first there was a litter of Cocker Spaniel puppies that we didn't go and look at because I think it was just like, we don't need a dog, you know. And then there was this litter of Spoodle puppies or whatever he is, Franken Spoodle puppies. And there was one dog that they'd named Big Boy who was clumsy and he was goofy and... um, you know, he was the one that was still like like a cartoon dog. Like all the other dogs would run to the food bowl and he'd be running there and his feet would be frantically moving but he wouldn't be going anywhere. And then he'd be the last to the food bowl. And I just immediately fell in love with him and um, we, we bought him. You bought him on the first look. <laughs> we went to a local Indian restaurant and had dinner and a bottle of wine. And so most of that dinner was spent um, writing a list of potential names. We were sort of playing around with the Chewbacca Wookiee <laughs> sort of motif for a while. There were some classics, like I think Ace was on there. But yeah, we settled on a ridiculous portmanteau. So his full name is George Harrison Ford, <laughs> which is a ridiculous combination of um, my two childhood heroes, George Harrison and Harrison Ford. The Quiet Beetle and Han Solo, you know. That's a lot to live up to. A lot of names for a dog as well. A lot of names for a dog that's like maybe not the brightest dog on the block. Is it like a kid who gets called their full name when he's in trouble. Do you know what? I don't think I've ever actually yelled his full name out loud, but he's always been Harry. And um, yeah, he's definitely Harry. Joel and Katie had not long moved in together when they brought Harry home. There was definitely a sort of like putting a flag in the sand that um, that this was serious and it was long term and I think Harry was definitely a part of that. The idea of taking a dog on was always going to be he's going to be exercised and we're going to look after him and he's going to, you know, live a good life with us. And so, yeah, you, you sort of weigh that kind of stuff up before you you got by a dog, I think. Joel already knew very well what it could mean to have a family dog. I had a dog till I was about uh, 10 or 11, I think, a, a 
dog called Frodo. <laughs> My mum was a bit of a, uh, you know, pre-sort of Lord of the Rings movies. Um, when she was at uni, she was a bit of a Tolkien fan. Yeah, I know, right? But so we had, like, her car was Bilbo, the cat was Baggins, um, and the dog was Frodo. I was almost Gandalf. And it's like, the one time I think my dad's forcefully stepped in and gone, like, you shall not pass. Like, but, you know, no son of mine will be called Gandalf kind of thing. Oh, and so, dad. I know, I really dodged a bullet there. Year. Yeah, I do. <laughs> so um, what kind of dog was Frodo? Frodo was half German Shepherd, half Golden Retriever. So he had this beautiful long, long golden coat with the sort of face of a, of a German shepherd. Oh, wow. I have a really visceral memory of sort of hugging him around his chest and how soft he is. And um, he was a really wonderful dog for me as a kid. I loved growing up with him. He was a really smart dog as well. Like I remember as a kid, um, he did this thing where they'd give him a hard boiled egg and he'd like take the shell off and eat the egg. Whereas Harry can't walk past your microphone without pulling all your gear over. Good boy. Um, you know, we, we, I sort of spent a lot of time in my childhood down on the south coast of New South Wales and so, like, we'd go around the rocks and he'd bark at all the crabs and, you know, it was, yeah, very, very big part of our family growing up. Frodo was, like, 14 and had, uh, had some illness where he needed to be put down. You know, it was a sort of humane decision to put him down. And um, Dad went in with him and he had a last meal of bacon and eggs and stuff. <laughs> and Dad stayed with him. I think it's the first time I'd sort of seen my dad but anyone in my family express a really intense grief. Um, and it was, um, like, I, I don't... I haven't seen my dad that upset. Like, even when human family members have passed away, like, I think it's like dad just deals with it in a, um, in a different way. Joel was about 10 years old. His parents didn't shy from explaining what was happening. So even though he did understand it, what Joel remembers most is his father's overwhelming sadness. When Dad was in with Frodo while he was getting put down, he made a promise to him that he'd never get another dog, and Dad's never had another dog. So that was 1986. And he loves dogs, like he's a dog person. So like when we got Harry, my dad and Harry have a really special bond, and Dad just uh, is the staunchest sort of grandparent level <laughs> defender of, of Harry and Harry's interests. So what sort of dog did Joel's new puppy become? Harry's nine now, and to look at, at least, he has the best parts of a Cocker Spaniel, those velvety ears and paws. He is a gentle dog. He's a loyal dog. He is loving and he's a bit goofy as well. He has kind of hairy chops around his mouth, like I do. I think it runs in the family. So when he drinks in his water bowl, he'll lift his snout out and then walk back through 
the house dripping water every step of the way so we'll actually have a couple of old towels around his water bowl and it's like I always think of myself you know how they have those kids at the NBA and if a basketball court gets a bit sweaty in between plays they'll go out and they'll mop the sweat up I think of myself as one of those kids just going out and constantly following the dog around mopping his trail of, of beard water If this is Harry's most annoying habit, you can conclude he's basically a very good dog, a perfect dog, a good and handsome boy. Now let's go back a few years. It's 2013. Obama is in the White House. Joel and Katie have been married a year or so, and Harry's just about out of his puppy stage. Joel's happily working at the ABC, Katie is working for the New South Wales state government. But change is in the wind there. And one day, she Googles around for work in her field. She types in climate adaptation jobs. And up pops a job in New York City. And so she sent off an application, like literally on a, on a whim, on her lunch break, you know. So much so that she didn't even mention to me that she'd applied until (laughs) they wrote back and said, oh, we want to interview you. Then there was, you know, quite a sort of intense series of interviews and at each stage it's getting sort of more real that this is a possibility. Um, Until, yeah, she got offered the job. We were very settled at the time. We had an apartment, we had a dog, (laughs) we had a life here that was, like, very comfortable. But there's really nothing to debate. They can both see it. The job in New York is an incredible opportunity for Katie. We thought a lot about whether we'd take Harry. Um, My parents lived on the beach in in a kind of secluded part of the New South Wales south coast, so I think it's like dog Christmas when he goes down there. Um... I think in the back of my mind, I was thinking, oh, maybe he could live with my folks for a few years. He lives at the beach, has a a comfortable life down there. It wasn't that Dad didn't want to have him, but Dad was just like, no, like, your dog's part of your family, and if your family is moving, your dog should move with you. I was definitely leaning towards not taking him until I had that chat with my dad. After that conversation, yeah, I was convinced. Like he, it was a really good, it was a really good chat to have, and it made me go, "He's right. If we're doing this, we can't just not take the dog because it's easier to not take the dog. Um, we're going to take the dog." And then it happens. In September, Katie moves to New York. Joel follows in October after leaving Harry with Katie's folks. They have a month together in New York. But Joel being Joel, well, he just has one more project to finish before he can properly relocate. I'd signed up to do this co-pro with the BBC World Service that involved travelling around the Pacific from October to December, making this four-part documentary about ocean science. He made it back to New York on the 23rd of December. So I went from sort of, you know, sweating and having really bad diarrhoea and food poisoning on the beach of Kiribati in, you know, 40 degree heat and 80-something percent humidity to turning up in New York to minus 15 degrees weather and the polar vortex snow kind of piling in. 
But really, what good is a white Christmas without your dog? They needed to find a place where they could live and where Harry could be too. Renting with pets is massively challenging in Australia, but New York landlords seem to get it. I think also we weren't being very picky. We had this tiny shoebox, like it was a a studio apartment at the top of a four-storey walk-up, so no lifts, but had great views down to kind of Coney Island over Brooklyn. And it was directly across the road from Prospect Park. Harry didn't need a passport or a visa to enter the United States. Yeah, they had to prove that he'd been vaccinated, but he didn't need to do time in quarantine because all the diseases a dog might bring in are already in. So back in Sydney, just like any other piece of freight, Harry's taken from Katie's parents' place in a van to the international airport. And then the dog gets put in a crate and flown from Sydney to LA. The dog goes underneath. Okay, I'll break this down. So um, we had to buy a crate, which is, you know those cat boxes that you see people take their cats to the vet in? Yeah. Yeah, it's like that, but like the kind of McMansion version of that, right? Um, in terms of where they go in the plane, they don't go with the luggage because like, they'd freeze to death because it's not pressurised, but then also not in the main cabin. So apparently there's parts of a plane that have the same temperature and the same pressure control and the same like air system or whatever as where the human passengers are, but it's where like pets and living things go. So he goes in there. The dog has no preparation. No, like, what do you mean? <laughs> like, how would the dog prepare? <laughs> I think the less well, the less they know, the better. Right? <laughs> so there's no drugs. No, no, definitely no drugs. Harry's got this thing. I remember learning about it at uni. Um, this idea called learned helplessness. So back in the in the sixties, when. Um, science was a lot less ethical than it is now. They'd do experiments on dogs and, and, you know, all other sorts of animals. And one of the experiments they did on dogs was to have a dog in in a confined space and then have the floor be able to be electrified to give them an electric shock and to see how quickly the dog would run away. Right, it's a pretty dumb experiment, right? But then they had a condition, and this is like just trigger warning because it's, yeah, I, I, it makes me my skin crawl thinking about it. But then they'd have a situation where there was nowhere for the dog to go to. So they'd just run an electric shock through the floor. And it's like non-lethal, but it was uncomfortable for the dog. And what they found is that dogs have this condition called learned helplessness, where once they realise they can't escape, they just lie down and wait for it to pass. And um, that's brutal, you know, that's really brutal, unnecessary science. What were they trying to um, I, I, I don't know, to be honest. Um, and I think, you know, I think when Harry is stressed or whatever, like, he doesn't respond by tearing up the couch or, you know, barking his head off or... He, he, his energy doesn't go up. He just kind of, like, finds a comfortable spot. We don't electrify anything in our house. <laughs> he finds a comfortable spot and just chills, 
you know, um, and waits for it to pass. And so in my head, how I imagined Harry on the plane was him realising, okay, I'm here until I'm not here and I am just going to, um, I'm just going to chill out and, and wait for it to pass. So it was that lying inside a large plastic crate within the darkened, pressurised cabin of a Lufthansa jet, Harry flew, high above the Pacific Ocean for hour upon hour upon hour, 14 hours, without a clue that after a brief and troubling stopover in Los Angeles, and then another five hours in the dark, he would next sniff the open air on the tarmac of the John F. Kennedy Airport in New York City. If you've ever sent your dog or child unaccompanied on a long flight, well, you know there's something so vulnerable about it that to hold your breath until the flight lands, it seems only natural. So there was all the dog crates. There was like three or four dog crates with people waiting to come and get them. And um, he was just lying there, you know, chilling out waiting for me to come. All the other dogs are kind of anxious and pacing their cage and he was just waiting and then, you know, got out and sort of took him maybe 30 seconds to recognise it was me, I think, was just excited to be out and then we had a big cuddle and he went and did a big wee outside and then, yeah, came and lived with us in Brooklyn. In New York, they all landed on their feet. Katie's job with climate organisation C40 Cities was working out incredibly well. And not long after he arrived, Joel found a great story to report. He was soon picking up work with the best radio programs in the country. Harry was also loving his life, because down four flights of stairs and across the road from their apartment was a mighty fine park. Prospect Park is this massive park in the middle of Brooklyn. It's bounded by Park Slope um, along one side, Prospect Heights along the other, Flatbush along the other, and Windsor Terrace, which is where we lived, along the other side of the park. It's about a 6K loop if you run around it. It was designed and built by the brothers who designed Central Park. And Brooklyn locals like to tell you that they fixed all the problems with Central Park. I think the brothers themselves were like, we're going to get it right this time we're not constrained by the you know the avenue system in manhattan we've got all this land and it really is it's a natural wonderland you have a a massive lake you have uh, hills with forests on them you have little waterfalls running through you have these big massive uh lawns like these huge open grass fields Um, And it really undulates between different types of uh, ecosystem, I guess. So you have sort of tall tree forests, uh, shrubby mountainous forests. And dogs are totally allowed. Yep. So there's off-leash areas, but um, dogs are allowed anywhere on leash. We were in there twice a day. I'd go running around that park, would ride my bike around the park. It was um, really a place we spent a lot of time. Joel still remembers the first time he took Harry to the park. Uh, his nose was twitching across the road, like before we even got in. He was just clearly and obviously overwhelmed by 
what was in this place. And I don't think he saw his first squirrel on that walk, but he definitely smelt all of these unfamiliar creatures. American creatures. Yeah, right? And... um. Then when he when he saw his first squirrel, he almost like ripped my arm off. And then every subsequent squirrel he saw, he almost ripped my arm off chasing them. And there's chipmunks. So chipmunks make this like really kind of off-putting, ethereal, high-pitched warning sound. So when you're walking through a bit of woodland, they'll be calling out to each other like a bing, bing, bing. Kind of like that, but like higher. <laughs> There's this one time we're standing in the park and I just casually had Harry's lead in my hand and he was sitting behind me and we're having a chat with our friends. And what I didn't know had happened was that Harry had spotted a squirrel and the extender lead had sort of silently pulled out as he chased it. And then um, when it got to the end, it yanked my arm and I was sat on my butt by my dog. I still haven't lived that one down. <laughs> when people ask me what I miss about New York, I, I don't think they ever expect you to say, <laughs> I miss the park, but I, I miss that park every day. Yeah, so, you know... Dogs, dogs eat stuff in the park and they get upset stomachs and um, sometimes they just need to go, you know. And that could be really conveniently when you're taking them for their daily walk or it could be at 2 or 3am in the middle of the night. So I just feel a little paw on my arm while I was in bed and um, that would mean you have to get up and take me outside. What did that involve? Well, most of the time that was just a quick trip downstairs and outside. But in winter, when temperatures are kind of like minus 15, minus 20 degrees Celsius, there's a whole complete rigmarole that I need to go through to make sure I don't die when I go outside. So there's like... You can't just nip out and be okay. No, no. So there's like, you know, you need to clean your freezer out, levels of ice covering the footpath. There's snow piles on the side of the road. Um... The streets are getting salted and scraped a couple of times a day just to keep the, the snow and ice off them. Um, and you feel like the stinging kind of frostbitey on your skin. And then, you know, I, I don't think we need to go into massive amounts of detail, but like dog diarrhoea on icy, snowy ground at 3am in the middle of a park in Brooklyn, it's like not one of my proudest moments. <laughs> Frostbite aside, this was a golden time for them. They made lifelong friends and did great work. I mean, New York Public Radio is fantastic. Like, there was this morning where I was working on Freakonomics at WMYC and um, I got to work and literally everyone in the office had just listened to Serial Season 1, Episode 1. And it had just, like, cereal had just broken. Everyone there knew that everything had just changed forever. <laughs> I was sort of pinching myself that I'm like, wow, I'm sort of like here to witness this, you know. But it was, um, yeah, it was a very New York experience. Why would you walk away from that? But it was for the best of reasons. 
Katie was pregnant with their first child. And her sister back in Australia was due at the same time. With this in mind, Joel was ready to give up the New York hustle and go home to their Sydney family apartment and regular paycheck. So yeah, we'd, we'd sort of done our research beforehand and it's a seven-month process to get the dog cleared to come back into Australia. Seven months. It all starts with a blood test, which hopefully clears your dog of disease and sets a baseline. Then, every month for seven months, you visit the vet to repeat the test. If, and only if, all the tests come back clear, Australian Quarantine says you're good to come back in. There's nothing cheap about this sequence of events. You sort of like get used to handing over money in 80 bucks, 100 bucks, 300 bucks. Like it's just this constant like sending us broke, you know. About four months into this process, Joel gets a panicked call from his vet. And he was like, Joel, can you come up? I think there's been a problem with the process of getting Harry back to Australia. And it was our neighbourhood vet, so I got on my bike and rode up. Turns out, when the vet did Harry's initial test, Harry's microchip number had to be written on the vial of blood and on the paperwork. But the vet had just written the number on the paperwork, put it with the unmarked vial of blood in the bag and sealed it up. That apparently was enough to invalidate that blood test, which basically means we had to start again. Seven more months of testing. By this time, Joel and Katie had loosened all the ties binding them to New York, given notice at their jobs, given up the lease on their apartment, and by now Katie was properly pregnant. Um, we, We had to move back. And so then it was like, what do we do about Harry? And that broke my heart. It was so, it was so just torturous to think about moving back to the other side of the world and leaving your dog back in New York. But the plan being well and truly in motion, after three months, Harry was taken in by friends in upstate New York and Joel and Katie flew back to Sydney, Australia, sans dog. The friends handled the whole regimen for Harry, all the vet visits and the endless paperwork, with great care and kindness. Yeah, we came back to Australia. I went back to work. Katie had a little boy, Finn. Then when Finn was six weeks old, it was time for me to go back and pick up Harry. So there's an amount of paperwork that you have to clear at both ends of the transit that's like a mini PhD. It's literally like a a cartoon-esque stack of papers. Back across the Pacific to New York again went Joel, upstate to Sleepy Hollow to get dear Harry, back down to the city to present Harry's stack, seven months of new paperwork signed off by the vet and a rather large fee but the government department that handles biosecurity can still reject any application, vet or no vet. I was sweating it. I was going, if there's something wrong, if we've missed something in this paperwork, I'm here in New York and I can't take my dog and I don't know what we're going to do. American bureaucracy is just completely 
ridiculous like that. And it's all based on what I think the Australian government needs to let animals clear quarantine at this end. It's not like dog extradition. <laughs> I wish. Maybe he could have committed a crime and be brought back. Yeah, yeah, it would have been easier. You should have seen what he did to the squirrels. Yeah, Harry passed. He was good to go. No further delays. Just one more transcontinental flight for man and dog. Having been a dad for six weeks by now, it could be said that Joel and his old friend Sleep had lost touch. And as jet lag set in, Joel felt more guilty about leaving his family on the other side of the planet. On day four of the caper, Joel and Harry flew without incident from JFK to LA. The dog check-in, however, Harry seemed wise to Joel's plan. He hated me putting him back in the crate at LA. And he was whining as I left him and barking. And, um, yeah, it was really hard. I walked around to get my flight and went to the bar and had, you know, a beer and a whiskey. <laughs> just, like, just have a neat bourbon and a pint of, uh, of beer, thanks. And, um... Calm my nerves. I think I called Katie up from the airport and was, you know, teary, just going, let's just get the dog home and never do that again. <laughs> and so I did, I did a five-day door-to-door trip, but that was just, that's basically as quick as you can <laughs> leave Sydney, fly to New York, pick a dog up, fly him to LA, put him on a plane in LA and then fly back. Like five days was as tight as I could do it. But even that wasn't the end of it. Not for Harry. Joel flew straight home to Katie and the baby. But Harry had a little period of incarceration in Australia's centralised quarantine centre in Melbourne. And so he went there for 10 days in the end. And then my parents, which was very kind of them, drove down and got him. Have you ever done the numbers on how much it cost? Deliberately not. No, definitely haven't. (laughs) It's, um... It's like a, we used to say, oh, it's a small car, but it's like a nice small car, <laughs> you know. European small yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like one with the blinker on the wrong side of the steering wheel. <laughs> so if, on a whim, the family was called to go far away, would he do it again? You know, I think, like, <laughs> I always feel like I just have to check my privilege a bit as well. Because, you know, it feels very middle class going, oh, you know, like, should we or shouldn't we take our dog to New York with us to live? But at the same time, it's kind of like that is, is contrasted with this very universal relationship that you have with your dog. You know, he's, he's great. We love him. He hangs out with us and he's, he's part of us. And, um, you know, I think that's the thing. I think w- I would probably do it again because there were these... There are these moments that there are these moments that transcend all of the other stuff, right? So like the dog playing in snow for the first time. Like snow's falling, there's a thick blanket of snow on the ground, and the dog's never seen snow before, and he's going out and jumping around in it and loving it. And being the only people in Prospect Park as the sun's coming up and you know, walking down by the lake and uh yeah, so I'd, I'd, I'd definitely probably do it again. Um, but I might, you know, bolster the savings a bit beforehand. 
what's his happiest place? Sitting on the couch between Katie and I. Big thanks to Joel Werner for telling me this story and for introducing me to Harry and the family that windy Saturday in September. Thank you for listening and make sure you check out Joel's incredible podcast. It's called Sum of All Parts and there's a recent episode about the inventor of the Labradoodle that I think you're going to love. Oh My Dog is written and produced by me, Michelle Ransom-Hughes, for Alongside Radio. Saya Vogel is our sound designer, composer and mixer. Rebecca Armstrong helped out with script editing this episode. Stick around to hear a brand new song Sayers composed especially for George Harrison Ford in 3, 2, 1...